Good morning, guys. Happy New Year. You made it to 2021. Uh, man, many people were anxiously waiting uh, for December 31st and the close of the last year to celebrate that 2020 is now behind us. Um, man, it was, for many, the most difficult year in many people's lives. And as the sun set on 2020 and rose on 2021, we faced a new day, right? A new year full of potential. Right? But then uh, January 3rd came, right? And reality sank in, didn't it? And uh, nothing, you realize, has really changed much at all, right? The pages on the calendar have turned, but our lives are still very much the same. So we might walk into a room like this this morning and we still have a lot of disappointment in our lives. And this is exactly why we are beginning this morning a journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's exactly why. Because this book helps us ask the biggest and hardest questions that people still have today. Uh, big questions that lie at the heart of living in a world like ours. People ask, you know, what is the meaning of life? That's a question that Ecclesiastes is exploring. Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? That's a question that Ecclesiastes is exploring. Does God even care? That's a question that Ecclesiastes is exploring. Or even, is life really worth living? That's even a question that Ecclesiastes is exploring. I mean, if you went down to Gresham Station this afternoon, uh, if you walked your neighborhood, if you just talked to some people in your friend group, if you went to your office tomorrow, or uh, when you can finally, you know, maybe talk to your friends at school once again, you might ask them a question, what are you living for? You might ask them, what do you live for? What is it that you look to for lasting significance and gain in this world? And I bet you that not one person will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Every single person will have an answer. Because everybody's asking those kinds of questions. They're wrestling with them. And the issue is we, we talk about them in theory. And when we talk about them in theory, we have some pretty good answers. At least they feel like good answers to us. People, People will say, you most commonly hear in a day like ours, I'm just wanting to be a good person. Do good in this world, leave the world a better place than it was before. And that's, that's a pretty good answer, right? No one's going to argue that that's a bad sort of purpose, in a, in a sense, to live with in this world. But if you move from theory into saying, okay, now how are you actually going to do that in this world? What are you going to do in your actual living, in your day-to-day -day life, to accomplish that? It gets, it gets kind of tricky. Because, because then we look to practical things, don't we? You say, well, I, my work must matter. What I do in my work has to matter. Right? So I'm going to pour all myself into my work. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look for significance there. It's not working, so I'm just going to seek out any pleasure in this world that I can find. Right? And so we do that in a myriad of ways, so in ways that we would all say is probably unhealthy, in other ways that feel healthy um, to us at times. I'm going to look for significance or gain in just how I'm accumulating knowledge. I want to understand all that I can. Or we look for it in our relationships or in our family or maybe even gaining some sense of power in this world. And again, when we talk in theory, we're okay. When we actually practice and live life out, we see the problem. 
And the problem is all these things that we can pour our lives into, thinking that will finally make a difference, that will finally matter, we realize that they all disappoint us. In one way or another, at some point or another, these dreams let us down. Let us down. So be on the screen, but Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French pioneering sociologist, back in the 1830s, hey, 1830s, this is a long time ago, all right? He looked out as a sociologist on the people who live in America, and this was his observation. They live with a strange melancholy that haunts their, the inhabitants, that haunts the Americans, in the midst of abundance. We have all this stuff, even in the 1830s, you guys. Like, I'm guessing dirt floors, right? I mean, I don't know. Life is probably hard. We have all this stuff, all these achievements, so much to do, so much to see, so much to watch, to be entertained by, the best education at our disposal, and yet we are not satisfied. Because in those perhaps rare moments, enough to let our guard down, we know in our hearts that none of this is secure. None of it's secure. The only thing that stands between us and losing our dreams is time. This book resonates with the deep longing and unspoken sadness of our hearts. Just as we wrestle with life's inconsistencies and, and come to terms with the fleeting and fruitless realities of what Ecclesiastes calls life under the sun. I call it life on the treadmill, you know? But before you rush off to the pharmacy, as you think about coping with 13 weeks in this sober and seemingly depressing book, uh, you need to know that Ecclesiastes doesn't leave you there. It doesn't leave you there. This, there is a surprising hope in this relatively dark and pessimistic book. As we're going to see even by our passage this morning and throughout the rest of this book, what this book tells us is that our only hope for lasting gain in a fleeting and fruitless world is God Himself. But unless you're willing to wrestle honestly with the hard realities of life's disappointments, and you're not just wanting to run the other direction, you'll never be able to see that hope, and you'll never be able to appreciate it for what it is. So you will have to descend to the dark, mysterious, and even dangerous valley of reality in order to enjoy the breathtaking, liberating vision of life with God and Jesus that's waiting on the other side. And so the preacher, as Ecclesiastes calls him, invites us on a journey this morning, and with him we will go for the next several months until Holy Week, until Easter. So let's turn in our Bibles there. If you've never looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you will find it right after the book of Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament. And if you've seen the book Song of Solomon or Isaiah, you've gone too far. So it's right between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning, which introduce really the main ideas and emphasis, and I'd say tension, of the book. But before we read, uh, just right there in verse 1, there's two quick notes that since we're starting the book, I feel like it's worthy of pointing out. First of all, the title of the book, Ecclesiastes, uh, they get that title from the very first line. It says, the words of the preacher, right, which that word translated preacher 
in Greek is the word ecclesiastes. Okay, so that's the Greek word, uh, ecclesiastes, uh, because it refers to a person who gathers people together in order to address those people, in order to teach or instruct those people. So, you got to imagine there's a person gathering people together in, when they're writing this book, and they're trying to teach an assembly. That's what they're doing. That's why it's called the preacher. Uh, secondly, the author of this book, okay, this is the collective sayings and wisdom of the preacher. Uh, we're not given his name, but he's been traditionally understood to be David's son Solomon, who wrote the book Song of Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, most of the book of Proverbs, and for obvious reasons, he's called the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the reason why most people think this is Solomon is because if you read the book of 1 Kings and if you read the life of Solomon, you'll notice that the preacher's examples of how he's lived his life in Ecclesiastes completely mirror Solomon's life, okay? There's going to be people out there who will tell you they don't think it's Solomon. Uh, honestly, uh, at the end of the day, the message of the book doesn't rest and isn't changed based on who wrote it, okay? Uh, I just need you to know that I'm content to refer to him as Solomon, all right? So, just go with that. All right, so here we go. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the introduction to the book, and we read a poem. We find a poem says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize uh, before us this morning are uh, some hard words, and God, some of us are not ready for that. Uh, some of us might be a little scared and nervous for what this book might turn up in our lives, and yet some of us are living this every day, and we need it. We almost need someone to tell us we're sane. But more than anything, we need you to speak and to give us your perspective from this book. And this morning, God, we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. A few things that we see from this introductory poem of the book, uh, which again, this is really setting the tone for the big ideas of the whole book. Just keep that in mind. So, this should be on the screen for you, but first of all, we see the preacher's preliminary conclusion about life in verse 2, his greatest question in verse 3 that drives the book, and then his, the evidence that he points to, his observations as he looks around the world that really inform his conclusion. And then lastly, 
just how in the world do we respond to this, okay? So let's buckle up here, okay? First of all, his preliminary conclusion in verse 2, what does he say is his preliminary conclusion? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's a little bit of an unsettling conclusion, right? And not only is this his preliminary conclusion, it's one of the main themes of this whole book, you guys, okay? So if you're tired of the word vanity already, just warning you, okay? Um, The word translated vanity occurs 38 times in this book. It means vapor or breath, okay? Other versions, if you're reading the NIV, translate it meaningless, which it can mean that, but in my estimation, that's a little too specific, right? It can mean that, but it doesn't always mean that, right? So, this is the preacher's conclusion, vapor of vapors, everything is a vapor. He wants you to imagine going outside in the morning on a really cold Gresham day and just doing that thing you do with your breath, right? You go, right? And you could see your breath. It's like you do that, you go, is imagine trying to catch that. He says, that's, that's life. That's life. Everything in this world that we try to take hold of in order to find lasting significance is, that's what it is, right? Nothing you can get your hands on. That's this word, vanity, vapor. There's no substance, no lasting gain. Life is a vapor. It doesn't last and it doesn't amount to much in the end. That's his conclusion. Do you understand what he's saying? He's not necessarily saying life is meaningless when he says vanity of vanities. He's commenting on the transience of life. Life is elusive. It disappears as suddenly as it seems to come. Here today, gone tomorrow. So breathe in, right? Breathe out. That's your life. Not just a day in your life, but your life from beginning to end. Do you know what he's talking about? Right? Can you feel it in the endless cycle of the daily grind? Right? Do you have that sneaking suspicion that you're worried about? You're like, what if he's right? What if he's right? That all we give ourselves to in this fallen world under the sun is fleeting and fruitless. Okay? This is the preliminary conclusion. I mean, what a way to start a book. We're in verse 2, you guys. Come on pretty honest. You've at least got to admit that. The guy who wrote Moby Dick, Herman Melville, once said, he said, Ecclesiastes is, quote, the truest of all books. That's at least a positive way of putting it. Many people in history haven't been that positive. One person um, said, an ancient rabbi said, Solomon wrote Song of Solomon in his youth. He wrote Proverbs in his maturity, and he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was senile, right? One modern scholar even went so far as to say, quote, nowhere else in Holy Scripture is there so forthrightly set out an alternative vision to that of the gospel, a rival version of truth. Whoa. I mean, where is Solomon taking us? There is a key question that's driving his conclusion, and you find that in verse 3. What is it? This is his greatest question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
That phrase, under the sun, is a huge phrase. Um, in this book, it comes up 29 times, and what it's doing is it's telling you about life from the vantage point of being a human being, right? When it says under the sun, it's talking about life from a limited perspective. So, he's saying from my limited perspective of life under the sun, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils here? In other words, is anything of lasting value, any lasting gain to be found here in this life as we live out our days in this fallen world, running back and forth from job to school to the grocery store to our homes to job to school to the grocery store to our homes, you know, as we're doing our lives, if we just stop for a moment, if we step back, if we take a closer look at all that we spend our time and our energy doing, does any of it truly last? Does any of it make a difference in the long run? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's his question. If anything, what is it? And if nothing, well, then what? Isn't this question addressing the very thing that we're all on the hunt for, right? Gain. I'm trying to gain something. I don't know about you, but I love Frank Capra's movie, It's a Wonderful Life top three Christmas movie. It wasn't even originally a Christmas movie. I'm sure you maybe know that by now. But if you're unfamiliar with the story, there's a character named George Bailey who struggles to believe that his hometown of Bedford Falls possesses enough within it to actually sustain him in his life. And so, the idea of living in an old house with one woman in long love his whole life, in a little town with the same old job and the same old enemies, and seeking there the good of the same old people his whole life, causes him to want to leave it all behind. And in a famous scene, he says to his dad, quote, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. And the story has lived on for so many years because it resonates with us, doesn't it? There's a few assumptions that George Bailey makes there that I think we recognize in ourselves. Number one, George assumes that if importance is to be gained in this life, if you're going to find it, you have to travel to another patch of the earth somewhere other than where he presently lives in order to find it. It ain't here. It's somewhere else. Gain and significance is found somewhere else. And so, I, I imagine that there's some of you who've lived in Gresham your entire life, or maybe you've lived here for quite enough, quite long enough that you've begun to ask that same question. Man, I'm not finding gain and significance here so it must be on another patch of earth somewhere else. Some of you moved to Gresham because you thought this was the patch of earth that was going to give you that gain in significance, right? You know what I'm talking about? So that's what George believes, but he also believes that once he gets there, once he finds it, he will become a satisfied and happy man. He will be content. He'll be fulfilled. He'll finally be honored no longer restless within himself or within this world. Now, I don't know if George Bailey had read Ecclesiastes, but if he had, if he had a balloon, Ecclesiastes is the pin that pops the balloon, right? Because the preacher here, he's traveled to all the patches of grass, basically, right? He's lived, he's observed his life, and this is his great question. Looking under the sun for gain by our toil is like trying to buy groceries at a famous footwear, right? There's nothing wrong with the shoes. There's nice, 
You know, that's not saying there's no value in them at all, but you're not going to find it here. It's that way with the earth. If you're searching for your significance and gain under the sun, He's telling you, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find what you're looking for. It's not here, and it's not there, and it's not that other place you've been thinking about. What can be gained here under the sun? Because whatever seems to be gained is eventually lost, and we're back to square one. And we know this because we see these pieces of evidence, these observations that drive this conclusion, and it's found in this poem. Look in verses 4 through 11. It's the third thing here. He wants you to think about the fleeting nature of humanity on this earth. Look at verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I mean, did you ever wonder what native tribe used to live on your land that your house sits on? You ever wondered that? I mean, someone else used to call that place home 300 years ago, I don't know, 500 years ago, 700, I don't know. Right, do you know the people who lived in your house before you bought it or the people before them? Right, do you see what he's saying? It's as if the earth, the earth watches this parade of humanity coming and going, coming and going with little or no awareness of each other. It's just, right? Think about the endless toil of creation, he says in verse 5. What does it have to show for all of its work? The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens, literally returns panting like a dog, right, to the place where it rises. Always running, never getting anywhere. The sun's work is never any closer to being finished at the end of the day. And as we sleep and as we awake with its setting and rising, neither is ours. He says, consider the wind, verse 6, the wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. That's a whole lot of motion, that's a whole lot of activity, and nothing to show for it. Think about the streams, he says, verse 7, look there, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. I mean, how much work does it take for the mighty Columbia, you know, the largest river in North America that feeds the Pacific Ocean? Like, how much work does the mighty Columbia, how long, how much work does it take for it to move all that water? I don't know, people could correct me here, but I read that it drains about 258,000 square miles of water each year that's being fed from countless tributaries like the Kootenay, the Snake, the Yakima, the Deschutes, the the Willamette Rivers, so many places. It's moving all this water, doing all this work, dumping it into the sea, and yet the sea level remains the same. That's kind of disappointing, isn't it? A little bit. The endless cycle of evaporation and precipitation, that's a whole lot of work and nothing to show for it, right? That's what he's saying. And he says, think about you, what you see, what you hear. Think about all the effort we expend in speaking and seeing and hearing, and yet we're never satisfied. Our ears are never full. Our eyes are never done. Look in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Whatever you've heard, you still want to hear more. Whatever you've seen, you never said that's enough, right? And of course, all this is meant to illustrate how our work is never complete and doesn't ultimately accomplish 
what we want it to accomplish. There's no lasting gain under the sun. This is life on the treadmill. What you and I do every day, we're always running but never getting anywhere. A whole lot of effort without much to show for it. And think about what he's showing you because you totally get it, don't you? Right, because what did you do last night? Maybe. You probably washed the dishes. But what are you going to do again today? You're going to wash the dishes. You finally went and changed your oil three months ago. Six months ago? I don't know. Depends on how you follow. What are you going to do in another few months? You got to change your oil. My amazing wife has a, it's not a love-hate, it's a hate-hate relationship with laundry, right? Having little kids in the home, it's this constant cycle of, of pouring all those dirty laundry pieces into the washing machine, going through the dryer, taking them out, folding them all, finally getting the satisfaction of putting them back where they belong, and then looking over in the hamper, and it's already half full, right? It is downright depressing, right? That cycle, I'm doing all this work, what am I accomplishing? And we feel that in our various fields of work, don't you? You finally accomplish that thing in your job that you thought was the thing you had accomplished, and then you got to do it all again. And don't think, by the way, that a ministry is immune from this, right? You could spend years discipling someone in your own life. You can invest in people like tons. You could stand up and preach to a congregation for years and shepherd people over and over again, and then they still go out and they make deadly decisions for their life or they don't grow or they turn their back on you and they leave, right? It's not surprising to hear Paul's anxiety when he writes to the church in Galatia and he says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Guys, this book shows us the futility of our work in this world, even our most fruitful work. And that's what verses 9 through 11 pound uncomfortably home. You could give these final verses the heading, same old, same old. First, he says, our work adds nothing new to the world. Look in verses 9 through 10. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Now, you might argue that there's a lot of new stuff in this world. And I think Solomon, the preacher, would hand it to you. If you could see him today and you walk up to him and you go, hey, what are you talking about? Look at my iPhone. Look at my Nikes. We've got a space station in the sky. He'd say, yeah, that's new. Right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the things that you can create that's new. He's just talking about life itself because even the people who make the iPhone, they still have to show up for work every day. They have to keep updating the iPhone. They still have people that manage those people. People still get fired. People still get sick. They all eventually die. Solomon's not saying that there's no such thing as an invention, but despite human innovation, Life is basically the same rat race. And who can disagree with that? And it gets worse. Can you believe it? Not only does our work add nothing new, it won't be remembered either. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
This should be on the screen for you, but rapper and um, I'd say aspiring theologian and fun fact, native to the Pacific Northwest, uh, once said, I heard you die twice. Once when they bury you in the grave and the second time is the last time somebody mentions your name. You die once, we all know that one. But he talks about you die twice when people just, they don't remember you. They stop talking about you. He's being honest, and it sounds like he's ripping off Ecclesiastes to me. Because think about what this book, Ecclesiastes, is saying. He's saying we, so you and I, won't be remembered. That sounds a, a bit bleak, perhaps. can imagine someone said that to you recently. You will not be remembered. But let's just do a simple test, okay? Uh, I want you to actually raise your hands for this, even if you're at home. I want you to raise your hand, okay? How many of you can name all eight of your great-grandparents? Just first names. One, two, three. All eight of your great-grandparents' names. We got three. You guys are awesome. I don't know if I can name one. I don't know. I got a few. I can name a few. Right? Think about it. A few of you can, right? Right now, as far as your work and accomplishments are concerned under the sun, you are a mere four generations from oblivion, right? right? Uh, Eugene Peterson, who passed away, I think this last year, the year before, uh, he was a pastor, renowned author. He previously um, it passed away, like I said, and once a student came up to him and said, Dr. Peterson, Bono quoted you. And Eugene responded by saying, that's wonderful, who's Bono? And some of you were saying, who's Bono and who's Eugene Peterson, right? But if you mention people like Lou Brock, Bo Jackson, Sandy Koufax, Shirley Temple, Johnny Carson, or Julie Andrews, the youngest generation is going to say, who's that? But if you mention Billie Eilish, Ariana Grande, Jordan Peele, Cardi B, Ronald Acuna, or Zendaya, the oldest generation says, what? And guys, I'm only mentioning famous people a generation or two removed from each other. Every person comes and goes and is forgotten. This can haunt us. But it even happened in the great Joseph's life. In Exodus chapter 1, what does it say? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Right? No remembrance of former things. So if all this is true, that whatever we might look to for lasting gain in this fallen world, and what we see and experience in life under the sun, that everything is just a, right? And how do we respond? There's three common responses that we often make in light of these realities. You're probably feeling it this morning. Number one, you can try to escape. Two, you can just give up. Or three, you can party, right? If none of this lasts and therefore matters or amounts to anything, we can try to escape these harsh realities by simply medicating ourselves through the pain and the sorrow. I mean, that could be through anything. Right, something that gives us a semblance of just feeling in control or manipulating how we're feeling in the second. 
right? Whether that's through drugs or alcohol, pornography, like you name it, right? We could do lots of things. Or some of us, we try to escape by doing something that we often don't think of as escaping. We just get, we just get to work, don't we? We just numb ourselves with work. We work harder, right? We push the speed up on the treadmill even faster, thinking, I'll finally get somewhere, and we don't. In the end, it disappoints. Or you can give up, right? That's what maybe you do instead. We get philosophical. We buy into what is nihilism, the belief that nothing truly matters, and we resign ourselves to a meaningless existence. But honestly, that's really only for the most cynical in our world that do that. I'd say the vast majority of us just decide to do number three, right? Party, right? I can't remember if it was Dave Matthews' band or Isaiah that said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? If nothing matters, if it's all going to burn anyway, then let's just have some s'mores. But is that all? Are those the only possible responses to the dissatisfaction we find in life under the sun? Is there any hope in this book? Well, the short answer is yes. Why? Because there is a God. In fact, it's arguable that no other book in Scripture invites you to know and enjoy God more deeply and with greater satisfaction than the book of Ecclesiastes. Phil Riken, who I think is the president of Wheaton College, says, quote, in order to know and enjoy God properly, we first have to see, we have to see the emptiness of life without Him, becoming thoroughly disillusioned with everything the world has to offer. Do you hear that? In order to know and enjoy God properly, you have to see the emptiness of life without Him, without God. You have to become disillusioned with everything that the world has to offer. See, the God portrayed in this book is not a God, you guys, who has momentarily slipped off His throne, and consequently life on earth has just spun out of control. This book does not depict a God sitting in heaven, wringing His hands, trying to figure out what to do with the mess that sin has made. Right? Just, this should be on the screen, but this is just a snapshot of the God that is, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes presents to you. It shows you that this God is sovereign. Chapter 7, verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Ecclesiastes shows you a God who is powerful. In chapter 3, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. Ecclesiastes shows you a God that is good. In chapter 3, verse 13, Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And Ecclesiastes shows you a God who cares about everything that happens. He does care. It says in chapter 3, verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Guys, when we look at this world through our eyes, when we look at it through our experience, what we see and evaluate from the ground, it does look pretty meaningless. It looks like nothing matters, but when we see the world through God's eyes, if we could call it life above the sun, 
right? We see that, in fact, everything matters because the very last verse in this book, if you go there in chapter 12, verse 14, what does it say? God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, all of it matters. Every single thing matters. Looking above the sun, as it were, to the God of the sun gives us a different perspective on human experience under the sun. We consider the God who's over these elements, not these elements apart from the God who is over them. We remember that as we look at the sun, we look at the same sun that Adam and Eve stared at. When you think about the rivers, you could travel to the Jordan today and dip your toe in the same waters that Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Elijah and John the Baptist and the apostles and Jesus Christ Himself dipped their toes in, yet people have come in God and there is one who remains forever. When we fix our eyes above the sun on the God over the sun, who do we find there? Well, we see a man like us, don't we? but He is also God, and He is reigning above it all, because the God above the sun sent His only Son into this vain vapor of a world, and in Him we find that our work, it might not add anything new, but God is always doing something new in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we find, what did He do? He did a completely new work on the cross, because what did He do? He did a work of redemption. That was new. See, our work won't be remembered, but Jesus' work will never be forgotten, because it changed the course of history. It even changed your life, didn't it? Right? I might not make anything new, but God has made something new. He's made a new covenant in the blood of Christ Jesus to wash me and forgive me, and that invitation is for you as well. I might not do something new, but there is new life that came up from the empty grave when Jesus rose from the dead. I might not do something new, but there is a new heart that God gives you when you place your faith in Jesus. I might be forgotten, I will be forgotten by the history books and by my great-grandchildren, apparently, okay? But there is one who will never forget me. There is one who will always remember me. He remembers you today, and on that great last day when he opens up that book, he'll go, I remember you. Oh, yeah. I've been praying for you. I don't forget. People come and go, but I don't forget. I might not do anything new, guys, but there is a new creation that comes when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And the Bible tells you that when you do anything unto Him, none of your labor is in vain. None of it. None of it. See, our response doesn't have to be escape, and our response doesn't have to be work hard. It doesn't have to be give up, and it doesn't have to be party. It can be stop searching for that gain under the sun. Instead, look to the living God above the sun who made the sun and sent His Son for you.
Do you see? Guys, you were made not to find your fill in this world, but in God. So stop looking. The very fact that you're weary of this life is pointing you to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy your soul. And so I invite you to come along this journey with me, with us, come with us, with Ecclesiastes down into that dark and mysterious valley. Let's take a hard and honest look at reality, that vapor of a life and all the dreams that disappoint. But then continue to come. Come up with us on the other side to see Jesus and the beauty and significance and lasting gain of knowing Him and living life in joyful and reverent submission to Him. Guys, our only hope for lasting gain in a fleeting and fruitless world is Him. Do you believe that? Let's all stand to our feet. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into our time of response, of singing a few songs, just reflecting back, responding in worship to God after hearing His Word. God, we do come to You this morning, and man, it's hard to talk about these things. This is not um, smooth nice promises of your best life now, Lord. This is not the stuff that the world tells us. So, Lord, this morning we might feel a bit jarred by your word, but help us to see how good of a thing that is, God, that we can trust you, that in you telling us the truth, you are being good, God, to us. So, God, show us where we are searching for gain in places that you're wanting to tell us this morning to give up that search. God, would you please um, just comfort those who are weary this morning. I pray that they would hear your call to come to them, that you will give them rest for their soul. God, may we look to you. Jesus, will we look to you, the reigning God-man who entered this vain world, Lord but rose above it all into new life. I mean, we fix our eyes on you and worship you with our lives now as we respond. We pray these things in your name. Amen.